Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Warm welcome to another book off. I'm Joe Haddo, and whether this is your first listen or you're a regular, it's great to have you with us. As always, I'm joined by two guests ready to get very booked off. And today I'm in the studio with a couple of class acts. Irish novelist and lecturer Donal Ryan and debut novelist and former archaeology scholar Imogen Hermes Gower. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. How are we doing on the no carbs, Donal? You know, this is this has been an ongoing thing, and you had an early mm. flight today. Yeah, um, not eating carbs makes me really grumpy. Um, I, oh. I, I thought it'd last maybe two days, but it's been two weeks now, and I'm still. Oh no! Yeah, I haven't recovered. That's just what life is like now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I keep wondering whether that's a good idea, but maybe. Well, maybe I find it's I feel not. great, and as Joe yeah. was saying earlier, I'm, I sleep better. Um, my sinuses have miraculously cleared after years of being completely stuffed up and um, I just feel great but yeah just not quite happy you know <laughs> sometimes I think like you know is it worth it you know I mean happiness is surely more important than... that sounds like one of those like bargains with the gods yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> you'll sleep better but you'll be angry yeah 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 yeah. I'm currently on uh, no potatoes no beer no what's the other thing I'm not having bread mm. but I'm allowing myself sort of rice and pasta as a as a yeah, tree. That's, that's actually that's a pretty good um, compromise, I think. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever done? Yeah. Have you ever done it? Oh, I got a spiralizer last year because yes. I was like, I'm going to replace all of my pasta with butternut squash, and I used it really <laughs> intensively for about two months, and then oh, it's not pasta. No. I don't know. It just it's... isn't, is it? Butternut no. squash mixed with promises and never delivers really. No, yeah. no, absolutely not. I think maybe if you're expecting butternut squash, then it's... But if you're thinking about pasta and starch, it's really... It doesn't yeah. hit the spot. No, but it's on a very high shelf and I can't get it down, so that, that's the end of that now. <laughs> the spiralizer is the juicer of the 2010s, I think. Yeah, it? definitely. It's the, it's the one that's gone on the top yeah. shelf, like you say. They're going to be in the backs of it. everyone's mum's cupboards in 30 years' time, like <laughs> yogurt makers. And, yeah. yeah. Sell it while you can now, guys, I'd say. Yeah, maybe you're right. Imogen, you've you've not come very far. Donald, you've uh, taken that early flight and joined us from yes. Ireland. So thank you for that. And, and do you find yourself spending a lot of time over here in, in the UK? Yeah, I'm over over and back quite a bit, actually. Um, my kids have developed a real affection for London, actually. And my son, Thomas, is quite fascinated by the whole place, um, by the royal family and by London itself. And so it's great. Yeah, um, it's, it's so close anyway. I mean, it's a 40 minute flight. Just literally hop over. But um, I'm not a great traveller, to be honest. Uh, I don't like flying, but uh, I'm sure you know just have to kind of get past that ridiculous fear. 
Or is it ridiculous? I don't know. Well, <laughs> you I know, don't when know. you think about flight, you know, and <laughs> the mechanics of it, it's mildly terrifying. I try not to think about what's happening. I no, just let it happen. No, no. I've yeah. learned to do that actually, yeah, lately. Yeah, or, you know, years. get into a good book. That's another way of mm. just trying to forget yes. about where you actually are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not think about the physics for a while. Uh, or the no, let's not go into it. No, let's um, no. <laughs> <laughs> so Imogen, you you are a Londoner, or have you yes. moved here recently? I am a Londoner. Um, I'm moving to Bristol at the end of the month. Um, it's not the end of my relationship with London. No, it's definitely time to go somewhere else. Well, and Bristol's all the rage at the moment. I've got it loads of friends is, moving. Isn't it? Down I know. There. I'm such an also ran. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> jumping on that bandwagon. You're six months too late. <laughs> exactly. I know. We've got friends who moved a year ago, and we're such. Pathetic coattailers, but um, yeah, it's a really great city, and I've kind of known it. My grandparents have lived there all of my life, um, so I kind of know it broadly well. I'm very fond of it. I'm mm. looking forward to being there. Donal, you're in Limerick, yes, and mm. that is probably quite different from uh, where we are now. Yeah, Limerick is probably um, as big a city as I can handle, really, because I get lost all the time. I've no sense of direction. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I know my way around Limerick now because I've been living there for 20 years, uh, just about. It's a lovely city, yeah, in the Midwest of Ireland. Much maligned, but uh, it's got its great, great history and it's just a great place to live. What's the course that you teach there? I teach on the MA in Creative Writing um, at the University of Limerick. So uh, I teach with Joseph O'Connor and um, Giles Foden and Sarah Moore Fitzgerald. Yeah, so we've got a big class. We've got 24 in our MA course this year. Wow. Mm. And how, how long has it been since you sort of Packed in your job at the civil service and, and became a writer. Well, yeah, I um, infamously um, went back to work for a while, actually, back to my civil service job this year because I had taken a three-year sabbatical um, and went back to work last April, actually, for a few months. And then the job came up, full-time job in UL, which I went for and got. So I've never really been a full-time writer. I was a full-time writer for three months once and <laughs> it didn't work out at all. I didn't write. I wrote nothing at all, not even a letter. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I spent three months, actually, just doing nothing. and It was, it was great, but it was terrifying as well because I, you know, I had signed a deal to write three books and hadn't even um, a vague idea about what I was going to do. So in that three months, was it thinking about them or trying to start a draft? Or? No, I couldn't even think actually. I was Gosh. so overjoyed at the <laughs> idea of, of being idle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous I think. So yeah, after I sold this book, I was a full-time writer while I did the edits of it and it is yeah. like just this whistling void. <laughs> <laughs> really is. Like, you can get dressed or you can not get dressed. Yeah, or you can spend three hours getting dressed. Exactly, yeah. and like then you can like just look something up and rearrange the food cupboards, and it's still like five hours until anyone else in the house comes home. <laughs> like I don't like t- no, I don't think I will be a full time writer forever. I think you kind of need a m- meaningful human life outside of it. It's sure, very yeah. strange, mm-hmm. very strange. Yeah. But you started your career on a very different path. Mm. I mentioned earlier. You're a, archaeology scholar and you worked in museums as well yes I did so I kind of always wrote as a kid but I was very I think my parents were very clear that like well you know that's not a job but you have to have a a proper earning job that you fall back on so museums was my thing I was always intensely interested in archaeology um which is actually quite a different it's a very different discipline from fiction writing it's very like look at the site it's like building up a tiny picture in a very small, quiet way with incredible discipline and absolutely no flights of fancy, which is, I think, was actually quite a good discipline for me mm. because I am prone as a fiction writer to flights of fancy to be like, no, you're going to look at the things that are here and you're going to assess and you're going to 
never assume anything. I think that's very, I think that's a very good approach for someone given to fiction. And I worked in museums for a few years and I loved it, but I had graduated, I guess, into into the credit crunch and there were all these government cuts to museums and arts services that lots of people in my kind of cohort weren't getting jobs and I had a job and it was great but it was quite grinding you know not being in position to do an unpaid internship which is the kind of thing that gets you up that ladder and there not being many career opportunities I kind Mm. of started writing again as an adult just to I suppose give myself something that I was I felt good at and some kind of self-worth and something I could build because I wasn't really getting that in my career well I didn't really have a career (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, it was. It you was weren't getting kind of, it at the museum. No, that you exactly. Were at. Yeah, and I yeah. wanted to be challenged and be doing my own thing. So that kind of was my outlet. That was how I started again in earnest. Well, both of you have got uh, books published this year. Both brilliant books, and actually, both started each other's novels mm-hmm. uh, recently, which is great. Yes. So you know, we'll have to come back and do a now. Now that you've read them, let's talk about them again. <laughs> yeah. But uh, let's talk about them. Imogen, yours was published in in January. The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, mm-hmm. published by Harbour Secker. So how did you go from the museum to writing this then? You were writing whilst you were working? Yeah, so I was writing small bits of fiction in the museum. I was also working on a novel at the same time, which is dead and will never see the light <laughs> of day. Um, but I, um, whilst I was in the museum and I was starting thinking about writing again, I would choose objects. And I would spend, you know, maybe an hour looking at them and thinking about them and trying to write a small piece of flash fiction inspired by them in some way. That Sometimes this object would be very central to whatever scene I was writing and sometimes it would be more of an imaginative, what kind of place is this in? What atmosphere does it make me think of? Um, and that was just kind of like an exercise to challenge myself. But one of the objects that I looked at was this. The British Museum has a mermaid which we always, we who worked there used to really enjoy sending people to have a look at it. It's in this really dark corner and I, you know, people don't expect it and it's not really signposted much. And it is, it's this Fiji mermaid, so it's made in the 18th century in Japan and it's actually a monkey stitched to a fish's tail, kind of like baby sized. Um, and it's such a weird... It's quite convincing, actually, isn't it? It's really convincing. There's something really compelling Have about it. Have you seen it, Donald? Like... Just it actually, when looking at um, mermaids prompted by um, Imogen's book, actually, yep. I saw it, yeah. Mm. Mm. It's, yeah, they're really creepy. Mm. I think that it's... There's something about them that makes it quite hard to just think of them as fakes. I don't know. They have some sort of power over yeah. people. And I started... I was looking at this mermaid thinking that would be a great thing to write about who would own this what would they think about it what time period is it and um, I originally wrote The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock that was its title then it's never changed title as like a piece of short like it was about 2,000 words Um, and I just kept thinking about it and for several years I didn't go back to it but I kept thinking about this idea and thinking maybe that should be a novel but I didn't really want to I was quite afraid of it as well. It was a lot of I knew it would be a lot of research that I would expect of myself. So I didn't touch it for years. I think I also thought it would be too much fun. I thought that writing <laughs> should be a terrible grind um and this seemed like too frivolous and enjoyable and funny. I didn't I didn't think that was a, an appropriate 
thing to write fiction about. I don't know. It was silly. You should. Well, I, I can sense joy from that book, actually, because I'm not quite 40 pages into The Mermaid mm. with Sankok, and it's just, it's a joyful experience to read. And it, I, I get the sense that you experienced joy writing it. I did, yeah. I experienced also the whole misery of writing as well, but like there was a lot of joy in it, and yeah. especially in the research, being able to really, yeah, because it just about feels, it just feels so authentic, yeah, and it's Good. so compelling. Thank you. Very and actually, much. It, I think in the first ten pages, I come across, I come across Bombazine, Fosking, <laughs> and Viduity. I mean, three incredibly beautiful words. <laughs> they are. They're really good. I feel like I can say that because I kind of the words were maybe like the thing that I loved most was going around picking them up, you know, finding mm. them in. in here and there, viduity I do, I like a lot. Yeah. Um, and I like, I personally like a book where you might have to look up a word yes, every time. Yes, same yeah. Not every word, but yeah, if you yeah, come across just, the other word, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a thrill, it really is. Good. I'm they're, really they're gold. And Donald, you, you are a self-confessed lazy researcher. Mm, so yeah. how does, <laughs> how do you go about doing your sort of research? And this is your, yeah. this is your fifth novel, of course. I know. I, I just, I tend to just glance at things and to um, set my fiction in places that I know very well mm. um, and so I, I had to reach a little bit for Syria of course um, and, and I had an obligation to make sure it felt and sounded right but I, I, I find myself that when I research assiduously and steadfastly that I end up writing non-fiction I end up explaining things to, to the reader that they probably already know and but I feel this obligation to tell them every single detail and it's just boring for me <laughs> and boring for a reader and it's just it saps all the joy out of it for me but you know I take terrible risks when it comes to verisimilitude, you know, and making things sound right. And sometimes I think, OK, I'll just write this thing because it sounds right. And, you know, when I finished the manuscript, um, I'll, uh, I'll check, you know, I'll Google it, you know. And then I forget, of course, to Google it. And because it sounds so right, sometimes my editor doesn't, you know, thinks, well, Donald, of course, must have checked this, you know. There's no way he'd hand this into me, but I haven't checked this. And, you know, I've got away with it most of the time. But sometimes, you know, at a Q&A, people will say, Donald, there's a part of your novel here that's totally ridiculous. And they'll read out a sentence and they'll go, yeah, I'm very sorry. Can you get away with it a bit by saying, but it's fiction, so, you know, it's... Yeah, I just kind of, yes, yeah, you know, I just I make stuff up, you know, I made up that, so it's all made up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about From a Low and Quiet Sea, then, your your latest novel. And as I said, it is your fifth book. So how has the writing process changed for you, if if at all, between, this, you know, your debut and now? You know, it hasn't changed very much, actually. I still tend to write in the same kind of three-hour blocks at the same time of day um, and, and to approach it in the same way. And, you know, for it, it tends to have the same result in me psychically and physically. Um, it's, you know, I, I haven't really developed um, my, my technique as a writer. Uh, hopefully, you know, the, the way I use language and the way I actually write has developed and changed and hopefully improved. But I do tend to go about it the same way because it just works. And I'm very superstitious. So if something works, I, I tend to just stay doing it that way forever. And this novel takes us from a war-torn Syria, which you touched on, to a small town island and sort of via three mm. characters. So just tell us a little bit about, about those three men. Well, Farouk um, is a Syrian doctor who pays pretty much his life savings to get himself and his wife and daughter to safety. Um, and, of course, it goes horribly wrong. And he's pretty much, you know, I took the story from a news report that I read about a Syrian brain surgeon who, who made it to one of the Greek islands but lost his wife and daughter on the way. And Lampy is... You know, he's a kid, he's in his early 20s, he's kind of lost, he's drifting through life. Um, and he, he is kind of a bridge between the th- third character, John, and, and Farouk. And the three characters come together and kind of, um, I suppose, a bit of a narrative contrivance towards the end. You know, but it did seem, it did seem kind of necessary that I, I link these stories. Otherwise, they just would be three disparate stories. You know, 
and I, I always feel kind of guilty, you know, introducing kind of mechanisms into stories. But there's no way to avoid it. You, you kind of have to do it, really. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the point is that it sounds trite, but we live in a brotherhood of men, you know, and the person walking towards you is your brother or sister, whether you like it or not. Yeah. The characters are based on, two of them are based on, on, on characters that I had written years ago. Um, like I mentioned, actually, you know, in, in very short forms. And that happens a lot, I think. You know, mm. you'll, you'll have an idea or something will kind of occur to you. You might write it as flash fiction or it might be a few lines of poetry um, or something and it'll, it'll be a seed. It'll grow into something you hope that'll stand, that will bear the test of, of, of readership, the hardest one of all. You seem to take inspiration from the news. I mean, you, you, you mentioned the story of, of the Doctor coming over and I'm thinking of uh, Spinning Heart mm. as well. Does that sort of seep in and, and linger in, in the mind of you as an author and then you think, oh, actually, that's what I want to write about? It just, it, it, it felt... You know, when I started off writing seriously about 10 years ago, when I started to really apply myself to, 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 to being a writer or trying to be a writer, um, it just occurred to me that that's what I should do that it, because it felt right for me. But I just saw actually somebody make a comment um, under a review of From Alone Quite Sea. So he writes the news. He's a hard-nosed commercial author. Best to look to him. <laughs> <laughs> People make these assumptions about you completely wrongly. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, it doesn't sell normally. You know, it'll sell a little bit, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a huge seller and my fiction isn't that commercial at all. But it just seems like, it just seems like a task that kind of, you know, I've assigned myself and it seems to still have value for me. So I'll stay doing it for as long as it feels right. Mm. Imogen, can we come back to, to your book? And mm. you mentioned earlier when you were thinking about the mermaid and you had that fascination about, oh, you know, where would I set it? And you went for Georgian London. So tell us about the fascination there. Well, I'd kind of always been interested in it on the side. I never would have thought about setting fiction during that period, and I was very resistant to it, mm. which is probably why I came. took me so long to come to writing this novel. I think probably from my teens I was interested in these Georgian women, the women especially of the 1770s, 80s, 90s, um, who are kind of kind of being retrieved by biographers I suppose lots of them were mistresses so if they are remembered at all it's as kind of with this kind of like jokey floozy kind of thing about them someone like Emma Hamilton is definitely seen as you know a sex pot a bit of fluff on the side rather than a kind of credible human so I was really interested in them for years that they were very intelligent and forceful and often they were doing their best to find a space in a very masculine world that mm. didn't, you know, there was no security for them there necessarily that they didn't create for themselves. And I thought about them for years and I read a lot of biographies of them and their letters and things like that. that I understood, I suppose, the texture and the humour of the period. It felt very natural to me, which made it very easy to then decide to set the novel then. I think another period... It would have been quite fun to set it in the 1720s, kind of around the South Sea bubble period. Yeah. But I didn't feel as much of an affinity with the period. I didn't feel like I could find my way in very easily. Whereas with the 1780s, I, it felt like the doors were already open. I knew that world well. And I really wanted to write about it. I feel like maybe the Victorians have kind of glossed over that period a lot, that it's... um especially the bawdiness and the humour and the sexual attitudes of the time mm. are very much kind of purposefully forgotten. Um, and I wanted, I suppose, yeah, that was where I wanted to 
play. And tell us about Mr Hancock. So Mr Hancock is a merchant in his 40s. He lives in Deptford, which in 1785, which is when the book is set, is a kind of satellite to London. It's along the river just outside of the city. But this is where all the tall ships are built and launched from. Um, It's where the cargo will come past Deptford on its way into the dockyards in London. So Mr Hancock is kind of of this mercantile, wealthy world, but not quite in it, not in the city of London. And I suppose he likes it like that. Mm. Um, At the beginning of the novel, he is kind of resigned to the position that he's in. He's lost a wife and a child in childbirth, um, and this is something that has affected him very much throughout his life and something that continues to kind of hang around his neck. And he, near the beginning of the novel, is waiting for his one of his ships to return from Macau, Macau, with hopefully a lucrative cargo on it. The ship doesn't come back. Um, and what he gets instead is his ship's captain arriving on foot at his house with this fake mermaid, which he has sold the ship and its cargo in exchange for to free the money up. Um, so Mr Hancock is then required to put this mermaid on display in London to try and recoup his losses on Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I don't know about you, but I'm still fascinated by the docks and mm. cargo and the shipping industry even now. It being the core of how empire spreads, how Britain starts to kind of really clench its hands around the globe and leverage itself in terms of power is um, it's quite dark and quite fascinating mm. how everything is built on that kind of on that trade. I think also the idea of London as being you might well never leave the city, but you will have more and more glimpses of the things that are outside, you know, curiosities being brought back or wonderful fabrics and porcelain mm. and things like this that you you start to just see these tiny little fragments of what's happening in other parts of the world and start to kind of imagine and fantasize about what might be out there yeah i think you're right and mm. even even now with just the the huge big container ships and things you know i'm thinking of um 
Captain Phillips, for example, mm. you know, like it's still a huge part of our world and connecting us, you know, London, the UK, Ireland, whatever it is, connecting us to other parts of the world. And yet perhaps the the sort of romanticism of it mm. isn't there anymore. But there like is it was. still like that sense of um, kind of mystery and danger that like there are, I wouldn't know what rules there are at sea, like what laws mm. govern the space, what might possibly happen to you when you're out there. I think there's still a kind of sense of unknown when you're travelling on such an open space for such distances. Mm. Donal, you, you mentioned you, you like to write what you know mm. and places that you know. Is that is that going to be the case, do you think, as far as you know for the next books oh, that you write? It's more of a case, really, of starting with what I know because you'll all, you have to necessarily write towards what you don't know. I mean, if I just wrote what I know, I'd write book after book about a middle-aged civil servant, really, who <laughs> lives in a suburb and has two children, you know, and... I can't see anyone being interested um, remotely in that. But it's really, you know, when it comes to the language and landscape and lexicon of, of, of where I'm from, it, it just makes it easy for me to write. Just It, mm. it gives me a voice, basically. Um, and the way people communicate and the way people present their own stories and the way stories are told where I'm from is just, it, it's a very powerful way um, for me to actually get into a book and to actually be able to get a story down. Because, you know, there are only really a handful of stories. We tell the same stories over and over again. You know, we're all talking about love and loss all the time I think and, and you know and, and triumphs that you might encounter and the journey through life and so it just makes it easy it just it's it's quite and again it is the only aspect of my life in which I'm lazy if I'm lazy it's, it's, it's laziness with purpose you know it's, <laughs> yeah it's, oh I like that I, laziness with purpose I can I can get <laughs> yeah, on board with absolutely. that I'm yeah gonna, I'm gonna try calling it that yeah <laughs> with your course I imagine you get to read quite widely and you get to pick books to teach as well between you all has there been anything recently that's that surprised you or anything that you've put to the class and it's you know created some interesting results uh let me think now actually about this um because I recommend books all the time. Um, I'm not sure that my students always read them, but... Um. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is a question I get all the time. Oh, what have you read recently? And my mm. mind just goes... <laughs> yeah, it's happened to me right now, actually. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm guilty of doing it to you, yeah. see? It's not fair, but I, does that happen to you, Imogen? Because I, oh, I do yeah. it all the time. Definitely. And, I think, and then as soon as said person has walked away or mm. got off the phone or something, I think, ah! Yeah, seven things I could have recommended. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I don't know what it is about that. I don't know if it's... (laughs) This friend of mine, she works in marketing or sales in publishing. And she was very like, our research has found that no one knows the name of the book that they're reading or the author of it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think part of that is Kindles, but maybe part of it is Mm. like, I don't know, you're having the experience rather than looking at the outside mm, yeah. of the book like does it feel like you've been somewhere rather than read a thing that you can yes. then pass on well I ask my students always to read Emer McBride's A Girl is a Half-Farm Thing oh. and it's the conversations you can have about it are infinite you know but it's just such a beautifully worked um, piece of art you know I mean this the, the, the use of these fragments of language you know and the, the idea of, of of writing as as, as thought it's fantastic so it's kind of preformed speech and it's it's quite difficult for the first page or two but that's it you know mm. after after the second page it's easy mm. and it, it it does feel as though you're witnessing thoughts um in a very real real way it's so authentic you know and it's so so brilliantly done and such a risk you know mm. there's another novel actually written by a novelist called Billy Keane from Bristol in County Kerry it's called The Ballad of Mo and G and I think it's one of the great post-boom Irish novels 
it didn't get great coverage because the publisher was uh, it was a small house but they did their best and mm. it's a fantastic book really and I, I, I always recommend it because the, the way humour is used in it it's quite dark at times this book but the humour permeates every sentence it's mm. just you know it's a, and it's, again it's, it just gives you joy you know and, and joy you know it's a precious thing it's time for the book off uh, this is where you both get three minutes each to pitch a book that you think everyone should read. And then I have to, um, on behalf of the listeners, take one home with me. <laughs> so first of all, without going uh, into much detail, uh, Donald, what have you chosen for us today? I have chosen John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. Pretty big hitter. That is strong. Mm, pretty yeah. big hitter. Imogen, what are you going for? Um, I have chosen Master Georgie by Beryl Bainbridge. Master Georgie as well. Another, oh, gosh, that's another, that's another good, isn't it? You couldn't argue with the grapes of wrath. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all, it's all on the pitch. Now, I'm just digging around for a coin. Oh, I haven't bought one. Have you got a coin? Anyone got a coin? Do we, yeah. Does anyone carry cash anymore? No. Okay, well, um, well, we'll say, ladies first, would you like to go first or second, Imogen? I'm going to go second. Oh, wants to see what he's made of. Yeah. <clears throat> and Donal, um, you get to choose whether you'd like to be honked out of your three minutes or rung out. I think the bell is... We're going for the bell, are we? Yeah, very good. <laughs> right. Put that there then. So it's over to you. You don't have to take all of the three minutes, but as soon as we get to it, I will stop you. Okay. So it's over to you, Donal. Three minutes on The Grapes of Wrath. Well, The Grapes of Wrath is one of my... Um, formative novels uh, it had a huge effect on me and made me kind of a lifelong trade unionist and kind of left winger it, it, it describes the journey of a family the Joel family from Dust Bowl um, Oklahoma to this perceived promised land of California um, and it, it's just a kind of a, a book that resonates universally and constantly you know there's, there's something there for every age and for every political system I think you know and for every country um, it reminds us so clearly of the proximity of the idea of, of migrants to vagrants in how we perceive people who, who have to move in order to survive and not even survive, just in order to kind of have a chance at, at prosperity. There's a real love and humanity and warmth in it. You know, you can sense that Steinbeck loved these people, that he knew them intimately. Um, and, you know, in this day and age when we have neoliberals in power pretty much everywhere um, telling us this, corporations are, are, are good really and you know and, and, and allowing huge companies to ride roughshod and amok um, over communities and true people's lives um, the idea of, of people being homogenised into kind of discrete units but only as units of, of, of votes and economic worth it's, it's, it's worth reading it just for that idea alone um, and one beautiful thing about it is the narrative is punctuated with these, these perfect little vignettes you know, where, where Steinbeck describes all of existence in, in these tiny, compressed places. You know, there's a, a diner, there's two truckers having a chat in a diner about how much they'll tip the waitress. And in that, you have all of human life is there in that little, just that tiny scene. You know, you have Mad Joe in the, the company store um, haggling with a butcher about the meat he's selling her. And again, you know, you've got, you've got this huge story in that, you know, about humanity and, and how Steinbeck looked at people. You know, at the start of the novel, mechanisation has destroyed small farmers. The Joad family leave their farm and they look back and there's this kind of almost science fiction image of, of uh, a guy up in a huge machine with, with, with this, this black visor over his face. You know, it's, it's, it's such a, a powerful image. So it's just a, a really beautiful book um, about empathy and kindness and how they're our only hope of salvation. Oh, look at that. 
I'll ring you out anyway. You don't totally need it. it. <laughs> Did it in time. That was a, that was fantastic. Wow, it's Lovely. pretty strong pitch. Do you yeah, think? it is. One assumes you've probably read The Grapes of Wrath, Imogen. When I was about 14, mm. uh, my favourite Steinbeck is um, Of Mice and Men, yeah. which I, mm-hmm. it's lucky it's I didn't bring it actually yeah. because it's like... Makes me cry. <laughs> like it's a full weep. You would have had a Steinbeck off. Yeah. yeah, I know that would have been very tricky. There are two yeah. pages actually of, of, mice and, of mice and men that have thirty adverbs each because he, Steinbeck was an that adverb. That wouldn't theme. be allowed nowadays. No, no, I that wouldn't let that through. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's okay. You can use that verb. It's all right. You know, Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize for literature. So wow, what a guy. <laughs> Well, that was a very strong start done on a, on a brilliant pitch. But now we're going to hear from you, Imogen. You've got three minutes. Okay. Master Georgie. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a book, again, that was incredibly formative for me, I think. Well, so it's shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 1998 and it comes in at a lovely slim 212 pages, which always attracts me to a novel. And it is the story of this eponymous Master Georgie who is a surgeon and an amateur photographer in Liverpool in the 1840s. Um, and later he picks up his family and all these hangers-on and they go to the Crimea so that he can volunteer as a surgeon there. But the there are several narrators in this story. There is Myrtle, who is a foundling who has been brought into the Hardy family when she's a child and who confesses herself to be obsessed with George. And Dr Potter, who is another hanger-on around the family and who's managed to marry himself to George's sister, Beatrice. Um... And a man called Pompey Jones, who is a fire eater, who has also been drawn into George's orbit. Um, And I think what I find incredibly compelling about it is that all of these narrators talk around George, that they each kind of talk around these secrets and they each have their take on him. And I think it's incredibly, it's quite typical of Beryl Bainbridge's novels that she points your direction to something and in this book the focal point is George but in fact the real action is going on outside she never lets you just look directly at the drama and Myrtle particularly has an incredible as an incredibly important secret that she shares with George and which she and the other narrators kind of allude to but never actually verbalize that I've read this book lots and lots of times trying to think where is the point where I realized what this is where is the point that I suddenly you know kind of the curtain was pulled aside and I realized what was actually going on in this relationship and I've never quite been able to pinpoint it that I think is an incredibly just masterful piece of storytelling it's also a very impressive historical piece of historical fiction that it's so deft in reproducing 1840s Liverpool and then the Crimea without ever laying on the detail or the research that you just are compelled by the voices of the characters that you're convinced by it. Um, And I, I admire that incredibly. Its other huge strength is it's a war novel, but it doesn't... Um, it's a war novel, but it doesn't. Um, it's not at the battlefields. It's all of the attachments around and the kind of filth and the hypocrisy that exists around battlefields. <laughs> you look very scared then when I, I when I picked up <laughs> the horn. It's like, how loud is it going to be? <laughs> uh, but you got in there just under yeah, the wire. I, I did. Think. Wow. Okay. Ooh, another great pitch. 
Another great pitch and mm. two brilliant books. One thing I will say is, well, firstly, I love the idea of Pompey Jones, the fire eater. <laughs> <laughs> Having not read this book, I'm already drawn in mm. uh, from what you were saying and, and the fact that, you know, the, the narrators sort of all are around George and looking in, which I think yeah. is a really interesting take. So I said when I came in that um, this is a book that I quite often give to other people and I think that it's that it's the trick of it that compel that keeps compelling me. It's like I want to read it over mm. and over again and I think other people ought to as well. Mm. But it's, yeah, this kind of, everyone's not quite looking at the thing, the elephant in the room. Yeah. When you see copies of it in a charity shop or something, do you, do you buy them just so you've got, you've got a spare one at home yes, to give to someone always yeah. and I always get rid of them as well like <laughs> they always go too like eventually um yeah it's that and I think um Bad Blood by Lorna Sage that's another one that actually you see in charity shops quite a lot mm. um but which I always buy to give to other people because I think good. it's brilliant so you've got a sort of swap shop thing going on where you yeah. just give back copies and buy another one yeah <laughs> <laughs> and Donal um again you know Grapes of Wrath just an absolute classic as well and interesting, you mentioned these communities of, of voters and things, that how they're sort of pocketed. And it resonated with me currently with the Facebook sort of data breach thing that's going on mm. in the news at the moment and how these big companies just want data. You know, mm. we're, just, we're just data to them to make more money. And actually yeah. there, are, there are some parallels maybe there with, with some of Steinbeck's. Oh, for sure. I just actually saw a thing about um, China, apparently. Everyone's going to be assigned um, a trust rating based on their internet use. This is going to happen. And I was reading this story wow. thinking, this is surely this is surely not true. This is surely um, a treatment for some kind of Sounds dystopian like, yeah. film. Mm-hmm. You know, but apparently it's true. But from 2020 on, it, it'll be, it won't be opt-out. You know, it won't be optional. You will be so assigned if you're visiting... a, a score, basically. Websites citizens. that are felt to be insalubrious or something, yes. then your trust yeah. rating goes mm. down. Yeah, and you know um, what you say about the government and Facebook will, you know, will feed into your trust rating. And wow, yeah, that. And the tr- the trust rating is like a credit rating or something. It's or credit is... rating, yes. And the higher your trust rating, the more access you'll have to services and to certain companies' <laughs> services. Um, oh my god! Yeah, that is full dystopia. You will actually like... have you'll have better bandwidth. You'll have a, you'll have faster Wi-Fi speed if you have a higher score. And I really, I was reading this in a newspaper yesterday, thinking this this couldn't be true. This no. couldn't. This, this has to be some kind of dystopian no vision. No way. Yeah. Tell me it's not, but it is. Apparently, yeah. Well, yeah. It's very hard now, and and maybe uh, and my blood sugar was so low that I got it totally wrong, and it is some kind of uh, treatment for a, a novel <laughs> or a film. <laughs> God, that is really quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, that's incredibly oh, dark. Oh, well, look, I loved, I loved both of those pictures, and I loved the way that you talked about both of those books. I definitely want to read Master Georgie now as well, having I've read the Steinbeck, but this, you know, you've made me want to go and pick it up, unless you've got a copy from a charity shop lying around. You know, <laughs> um, do you know, on this, on this occasion, I'm going to take home, for the vignettes about humanity and for the parallels with, with the now, I think I'm going to go for the Steinbeck. Great choice. Do you think so? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> just, oh, just something rang rang true there yeah, ra- was... you know there was something that grabbed me with with everything that Donna was saying about was it grabbed. not that yeah. you were grabbed as well no, yeah I was grabbed but look I, Pompey Jones the fire eater and me are, gonna, <laughs> yeah. are really going to yeah, get exactly. on I think yeah. I read book. both brilliant pictures though and of course um, anyone listening can go and check them both out and they should go and check both of your 
new novels out as well. Um, just quickly before we have to go, so From a Low and Quiet Sea, published by Doubleday, it's out now. What are your hopes for, for this one, your fifth book, Daniel? Well, I have, I'm completely and utterly devoid of ambition of any kind in life, um, except to be happy and to look after my family. So really, I have no hopes at all. Hopefully people enjoy it um, or get something from it. I think that's a lovely way to be, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And about life in general. Really. No, I really should. I should. I should cop on really and start to get a bit, bit more thrusting, but just hasn't happened so far. You, when you were talking earlier, you know, and you were saying when you were a full-time writer for those mm. three months, it didn't work. I think maybe that's there's something in that. You're you're a writer and you're an author, but you're other things as well. You're not sort of putting everything into being just that. Maybe. No, I know. I, th- I think you know you can become monomaniacal about a certain about mm. things, and you can you can you can allow a certain element of your life to take over everything else and to colour every part of your life. But uh, you know that that three months actually, I spent mostly lying down on my back, um, in my back garden, just feeling the energy of the earth <laughs> soak into me and looking at the clouds was just fantastic. <laughs> it's pretty, we actually had three months of pretty good weather actually that year in Ireland. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. it does. And Imogen the Mermaid and Mrs Hancock, obviously your your debut novel, it came out um, in January, as I said, published by Harvel Secker. We read in the press about it. It was a big sort of 10 publisher bidding war and everything. Does that put pressure on on you, on the book, on the next novel? Yeah, definitely. As soon as it's bought, you're not writing in a vacuum anymore. You're Mm. thinking about how everything's going to come across. And I think that's never a helpful way to write. Like you kind of need to be not really conscious of who's going to read it or what people are going to be saying about it. But also, I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining. I was really lucky to get the deal that I did and it's something that everybody, I think, wants for themselves, but it is an entirely different situation from there's an incredible amount of pressure to kind of deliver and maybe keep delivering. Mm. That You know people are looking when maybe sometimes it's nice to surprise people. Mm. And what are your hopes for the, for this novel and in terms of who's reading it and what people get from it I agree with Donald like I I want people to get joy from it that's that's important I want people to read it and feel that maybe they've gone somewhere else and or that they've taken away something that they didn't have when they came to the book um but there's really no more than that really I I just want people to feel that it's a well-crafted story I have to say only being not quite 40 pages into it Imogen it's sublime and I'm completely hooked and it's great to have a book that you think about you know with actually you know massive anticipation thinking I'm getting back to my book now soon that's (laughs) okay yeah that's all that I want when you you look forward to getting back to a book that's the best 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 thing thank you very much that's the biggest compliment isn't it yeah definitely yeah well Look, I've read both of them and I know they're both brilliant novels and anyone listening should go and check them both out. And, of course, our Book Off books as well if you're interested in revisiting a couple of old classics. Donald, Imogen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Best of luck with both of them. And uh, maybe we'll get together again when the next books are out and we'll discuss. For sure. (laughs) That would be brilliant. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. <laughs> 